to IPV and me once again it has been a while you know what it's just life keeps getting in my way my job keeps getting in my way unfortunately I need my job to pay my bills I wish I had more time to record but I never do but just know I'm always working on new episodes I have a bunch of episodes that I have written up and ready to record is just trying to get the time to do it um i was also out of work for almost a month i had to take a leave of absence because i got extremely sick i had tonsillitis which i haven't had since i was in my like late teens um i once again got it from my nephews shout out to my two boys always giving me their illnesses we love that for me um so I was extremely sick like the sickest I've been in a while I could not speak completely lost my voice which obviously isn't ideal for a podcast and I didn't even have the energy I you know I'm sick when I don't even have the energy to read books because I'm an avid 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 reader and if I'm not reading then you know something is going on with me um so that was that kind of sucked um before that though I did record I promised you I was gonna have my first guest on and I did and we recorded our little chit chat before the episode and then that all went great and fine and then we kind of ran out of time we're on completely different time zones there's a little hint for you and um yeah so we had started to do the episode we said okay let's do a little bit of like the actual story and then we said we'd switch off and like continue at another day and then firstly I lost all of that audio so we were like okay let's just re-record that part of it and then our schedules just didn't line up for a while and now at this point it's been like so long it's been nearly two months so I think we're just gonna re-record the whole episode now because it's a little outdated um so yeah so I feel like once again here's me explaining why I've been absent but you know what I think you've come to expect it this time and honestly my listenership has gone up so much in the last month and I haven't even had any new episodes out so I appreciate that so much and anyone that listens I just know that I really appreciate you and I hope that you're getting something from this podcast too that's my whole reason for doing this is that maybe it's information that you need to get out of the situation that you're in maybe it's something to clarify you know something that you went through in the past and you now know that other people are going through this and it comforts you and all of that that's always what I do this for so thank you so much for that also I am recording this right now for my new project hopefully which is gonna be my youtube channel so i'm gonna try and record episodes for the show maybe not every single episode but i'm at least gonna try and do videos for some of them this is just a little trial one now it may not work out i've not done youtube videos before it's all new to me i watch a lot of youtube i watch a lot of vloggers and i always uh, enjoy it so I'm going to try it out. It seems to be kind of popular in podcasting now. A lot of my favorite um, podcasters seem to do YouTube videos now, which is interesting. I can, think, I can understand why people uh, would be interested in doing, you know, in kind of like having that little video. And some people like to have a, a face 
to the voice, which I can completely understand. So we're trying that out. I'm also on my YouTube channel going to do some um, things that are not um, just the podcast episodes. So I'm going to, you know, just like talk about my journey and um, just about domestic abuse in general and stuff like that. So I have a lot of things coming up. Uh, the podcast is always my main focus, but I... I'm just uh, hoping to like try and fit in as much time as possible. I need to kind of start scheduling. I, to be fair, my work schedule um in recently has been the same every week. Which you know I work in retail and that's like kind of unheard of. So um, that's that's kind of up to me now. I I tend to get the same days off every week as well. So I need to just start um, scheduling myself time to do the podcast but I'm always working on the podcast episodes like when I'm watching tv or doing other things I'm always typing and I'm always like researching so the behind the scenes work is always happening it's the recording that seems to be the part that I'm struggling with but you know uh we'll we'll just get on with it um today's episode uh I when I say I flew through this episode in the last few days um it's I think it's the first episode that I've done that just reminded me so much of my own story so it was kind of like hard to do but also like I kind of flew through it at the same time because there was just so many similarities and a lot of it just kind of gave me chills and like you know because I've come so far and it's been what seven almost eight years now for me and I uh, like just kind of reading it and and I got like pretty much all my research from a book but um just reading it really kind of gave me chills and made me kind of see like wow like that happened to me that happened to me that happened to me and it's like I can't believe that that was my life at one point like I had four and a half years of this continual like abuse and it's just so crazy to me like sometimes when you see it in somebody else's story um and this one is so particularly clear to me because it was so similar it just kind of like still blows my mind all these years later um but it's a very 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 sad tragic horrendous horrific story like it's really I was so emotional the whole way through um so I'm just gonna warn you about that this one doesn't really end that well and um I kind of stuck to the format of the book um that the family members wrote so it's gonna kind of it's not gonna be a, a linear timeline it's gonna kind of go back and forth back and forth and um another thing about this is that um the perpetrator the abuser in this situation um they don't mention his name at all in the book and that is on purpose they just don't want to give him a voice and I really understand and respect that so I'm also not going to give this man uh, a name or a voice and you know if you want to know more I've left all the links there for you in the episode bio as usual and you can do some other research about that if you need to and yeah so um let's continue with the episode so I'm taking uh basically the whole story majority of the story from 
the book the book has two titles um remembered forever or operation lighthouse um i think the operation lighthouse is the physical book and i think the remembered forever is like the ebook version of it um and it's written by luke and ryan hart who are the sons and brothers of the victims in this story and the brothers say that they wrote this book because they felt a responsibility to tell their story and i can completely completely understand that and before we get into the full story i just wanted to point out some things that they talk about at the beginning of the book um so when they say they recognize that they needed to highlight their story to allow others to see behind the veil of abuse and to draw parallels to their own relationships so i'm just going to list some just some of the facts that the brothers wanted to show so the first one is abusers are far too prevalent to be the anomalous monsters they are often represented as given one in four women in the uk will suffer domestic abuse in their lifetime the sheer number of domestic abuse victims suggests that domestic abuse is not merely the result of intimate partners who cannot control their anger. In fact, overall, men who murdered their female partners were more likely than men who murdered men to get on in prison and be defined as model prisoners. These men have no problem following rules or restraining their instincts in male-dominated environments. They defer to hierarchy and power structures. However, they can be brutal towards those who they consider being beneath themselves. 90% of non-domestic homicides are male victims, but 70% of domestic homicides are female victims. Men choose to murder other men in public, often strangers, but women in private. They're women. We must conclude, therefore, that abusers are common products of masculine culture, not anomalies within it. These men strongly believe in gender stereotypes and hold their partners rigidly accountable to these ideals. Abusive men don't necessarily have bad views towards women, just their own. They worship the idea of a submissive wife and they punish their real wife who doesn't meet their expectations. The primary factor responsible for domestic abuse is gender, not a lack of emotional control, as is often blamed. The consequence of the masculine desire for power and control over intimate partners, combined with the extensive list of purported excuses, is that 50% of all female victims of homicide aged 16 and over are killed by partners or ex-partners. In contrast, the figure is only 3% for male victims. Home is the most dangerous place for women. 75% of female victims of homicide were killed at home, as opposed to 38% of males. Domestic homicides account for approximately 35% of all murders in England and Wales. So that is only a small little excerpt of the facts that they state at the beginning of this book. I really, 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 really urge you to read this book. There are far more facts and they're in far more detail and it's just so well explained in the book like these are all things that I kind of knew myself but it's just like the way that they explain it is just so clear and so interesting and in kind of ways that I'd never really thought of before um so please please read that and yeah so let's get on with the episode and the story so today's episode is the story of Claire and Charlotte Hart. 
19th, 2016, 8.50am. The quiet market town of Spalding in Lincolnshire, England was waking up to a bright morning. At the Castle Sports Complex swimming pool, some residents were making the most of the early sunshine. The car park was quiet with few cars and only three people present. Two thunderous roars pierced through the silence. Staff from the centre and a nearby cleaner rushed towards the sound of gunfire. Two women were lying adjacent to each other with gunshot wounds to the abdomen. A few metres away lay a deceased male. The women were 50-year-old Claire and her daughter, 19-year-old Charlotte Hart. They were regulars and recognised instantly by the staff. Claire had fatal wounds and soon passed away. Charlotte was still conscious and calling for help. Despite great efforts by staff and paramedics at the scene, Charlotte too passed away. Within the hour, police had cordoned off the swimming pool and nearby schools were put in lockdown. Luke and Ryan Hart, Claire and Charlotte's sons and brothers, were working hundreds of miles away and unaware of the events that had just unfolded. News would reach them shortly. The man was their father. Luke and Ryan were seven and five respectively when their mother Claire arrived home with their newborn sister Charlotte. They both instantly felt a deep desire to care for their sister. They wanted to hold her. The beautiful moment was cut short by their father's arrival. Go to bed, it's late, he said. As with Ryan, Charlotte was another mistake in their father's plans. He only needed Luke to make their mother dependent on him. Three children were unnecessary competition with their father for their mother's affection. Through June 2016, Ryan had been commuting to Holland for work and returning home to Spalding for the weekends. As his routine was similar to his previous job in Reading, he had decided to keep the new job secret from his father. He preferred him to know as little as possible about himself, especially as they were all planning to leave soon away from his suffocating grasp. He, Charlotte and Claire relished the secret they had from their father. They would smirk like kids when he concocted yet another story of why he had started to bring his suitcase with him each weekend. They always enjoyed joking to themselves at their father's expense. Planning an escape, starting a new job and living out of suitcases was exhausting. His weekends at home were closely watched by his father. He had little chance to relax. They would be followed around the house wherever they went, either blatantly or secretly. They would have to hide in the garden and whisper to each other. They always had a pre-agreed cover story for their conversations. I can totally relate to just how exhausting this is. I would have all of my phone conversations on the porch of our apartment in like whispered codes because I knew he was always listening at the open windows or he would be on the other side of the door. I got promoted at my job without telling him. Um, I would tell him I was meeting a friend for dinner or I was working late when really I would be off to a party with like work friends. It's kind of exhilarating when you know you have your own little secret but it's also so tiring not to just be able to live your life and do the small mundane everyday things openly um it's just it's exhausting keeping a secret whether it's like in a in a good way or in a bad way if it's to protect yourself or not it's exhausting so while he was away at work ryan would encrypt his messages to his mother 
he would write the first half in a certain way so that when the notification was on the screen, only that part would be read. An example he gives being, Hi mom, hope you're having a great day at work, how's the weather? Reading is going well, looking forward to seeing everyone at the weekend. Now that that's out of the way, here are some rental properties I found. Have a look and let's see if we can sneak in a few visits after swimming on Saturday. He shouldn't notice if we stay an extra half hour or so. If he asks, I'll just say that the club had booked our lanes for an extra 30 minutes for the swim session. Like, can you imagine having to code your text messages to your mother so that your father doesn't read them? Like, it's so hard to live in these kind of environments. Like, I think if you've never been in this kind of a situation before, it's like so hard to understand it. Um, like people say oh but it's like it's my phone I'm not gonna let anybody read my messages or whatever but like when you're in this situation you've been so broken down by an abuser like it's you just don't understand how very hard that is you've given up control of your whole entire life Luke arrived at the hotel followed by Ryan a little while later there was a lightness to them both they laughed at the novelty of them both staying at a hotel in Spalding they went over the plan for the next day, pick up the moving van at 8am, head straight to the house. There, their father would be at work by the time they arrived. They planned to load what they could onto the van and leave before lunchtime before he got back. On the morning of Thursday, July 14th, 2016, they gathered their things and grabbed a taxi. They got the van and drove it to the village of Moulton and parked one street up from the house. They texted their mum at the agreed time but didn't receive a response. They waited for a while before they rang, still nothing. Ryan ran over to the house. Their father's car was still there. 15 minutes passed before their mother called. Their father had driven her to work against her will in another bout of paranoia. She said his behaviour had been particularly bad that morning. They collected her and brought her back to the house. She showed them the safe deposit box their father had chained up in the garage with all of her personal belongings and documents inside and keys they phoned to get a locksmith as soon as possible so just to touch on that part there where he's keeping um i feel like i kind of stumbled a little bit over my words but he's basically keeping all of her personal documents and her keys passport everything inside in this lock box um that he has in the garage so she can access her personal documents so these are things that like you need for the, to do the smallest of things like open a bank account um get your driver's license travel um you know get a new phone network like things like that um like if you have somebody that's taken all of that away from you imagine how hard it is to just like be able to rent an apartment just to like do little things like that i remember when i left my abuser how hard it was for me to get a new phone network um because i didn't have a lot of credit in this country because i hadn't lived here for that long and i hadn't had my uh work visa for that long so i didn't have a lot of credit built up for them to give me um access to a phone network and the reason why i wanted to get off of my old network is because he was on that network and at that time he had um gotten itemized bills because he wanted to check up what numbers I was calling and to try and figure out where I was and where I was staying at that point so this is like for all those people that still get so confused and so like 
can understand why people don't leave these relationships like it's for reasons like this because you literally can't like you don't have anything any of your belongings your money anything they were all highly on edge their mother left a note saying she would email their father later and they grabbed their two dogs and left charlotte was on holidays with her boyfriend and would be back after the weekend they finished unpacking by late afternoon everything felt different they recognised it as freedom, a feeling they had never had before. On Tuesday, July 19th, Ryan was back in Holland. The move had been successful and his mother and sister were adapting to the change. The future felt exciting for him. When he got back from lunch, he opened the BBC News app and saw a headline that three people were dead after a shooting in Spalding. There wasn't much information, only the location of the swimming complex. He immediately texted his mother and sister to call him. He started to panic. The messages were both delivered but weren't yet marked as read. He knew his mother could take forever to text back but his sister would always text almost immediately. He called them but both numbers rang out. He tried to think of reasons why they wouldn't have picked up. Maybe they too were panicked about an active shooter. Maybe they just hadn't heard their phones. He called Luke, who reassured him that he must be overthinking and to call the local police station to ease his worries. The woman at the station took his contact information and said she would have someone call him back soon. He left work early and went back to his hotel room to wait for the call. Finally, someone called him. The woman asked where he was and if anyone was with him. When he said he was in Holland, she asked if he had any immediate family and for their contact details. She was calm and reassuring, but looking back, the request for contact info from immediate family members should have confirmed his worst suspicions. She said she would call back and he went to bed, still not reassured. The phone rang again. It was a colleague of his mother's and one of her best friends. He said he was at the Spalding police station. He paused. His breathing was accelerated. With a trembling voice, he finally spoke. Come home, mate. Come home. Luke received a similar call. Can you just imagine that? Like, this part at the beginning of the book particularly, it just completely broke me. Like, I got so emotional because this family, like, they had finally broken free of this horrendous man, this horrendous abuse. They had their own place. They were free. They were settling in. And this is only a few short days later and they're dead and I just like it just makes me feel so extremely lucky that I got out and I was one of the lucky ones because this is so common and it's so dangerous and they say that the most dangerous time for a woman to leave her abuser um or the most dangerous time for a woman is when she leaves her abuser because they have nothing to lose at this point um and it's just so heartbreaking and i can't even imagine those poor boys getting those calls that their worst fears were confirmed and it was their mom and their little sister it's just it just completely breaks me so Ryan texted his friend Louise to tell her what had happened. He had only met her four weeks earlier when she had introduced him to his work team and made him feel at home. She immediately came over. She agreed to come home with him for support. His flight home kept getting delayed and was eventually cancelled. 
A family liaison officer was due to meet them at the airport in London. They raced to another airport to catch a flight from there. Once they landed, the PA system requested everyone to remain seated. The passengers looked around confused. Are Ryan and Louise on board? They headed to the front of the plane. They were met by two family liaison officers. They were led through the airport by the officers, bypassing any queues and barriers. Luke was outside waiting by two unmarked police cars. When they had seen each other only two days before, they had been surrounded by moving boxes, feeling joyous and free. They hugged and were taken to the police station, where it was explained to them what would happen over the coming days. At their funeral, the brothers read a eulogy. It ended, We know that right now you will both be looking down upon us and wishing us the strength to carry on. We owe you everything we have to keep going, to not be defeated. With your love, determination and inspiration as an example, we have been shown a resilience that cannot be matched. We hope to make you as proud as you have made us. We love you, Mum. We love you, Charlotte. That evening at the wake, they committed to do everything they could to overcome all that had led to this. They refused to give up. So what had led their family to this devastating tragedy? When Ryan was five, he was excited one day to see that later that night there would be a horror movie about spiders on TV. His mother said it was on past his bedtime and he was far too young to watch it. His father shouted at her for interfering. His face lit up with a sly smile and he said it would be good for the boy. It's rare his father lets him do anything against the rules and he's surprised but excited. At nine o'clock everyone goes to bed and Ryan sits down to the movie. But soon a spider eats one of the characters and he bursts into tears. He runs out of the room when his father appears and says come on it's just starting you're not leaving now are you? He doesn't want to watch it now but he turns to sit again. This time his father stays in the room. He is scared but tries not to show it. His father smirks contentedly at his achievement. He believes it is useful to teach fear young. Luke and Ryan spent the following weeks recounting their lives to the police to form their statements. They slowly learned that they were the victims of domestic abuse. During those days they often heard the term Operation Lighthouse, words chosen to describe their family's tragedy. Growing up, they had never identified as victims of abuse and didn't realise the mortal danger they had been in. They believed domestic abuse involved drunken fathers beating their families. They had always known their father's behaviour was unpleasant, disrespectful and aggressive, but never dangerous. He had constantly told them that these were the normal ups and downs of family life. Claire and Charlotte had always remained positive despite their father's behaviour. They had never heard of coercive control, but this was a phrase that characterised their entire existence. One day when Ryan and Charlotte were 11 and 6, they were arguing as kids do. Ryan wanted to play a video game, but Charlotte wanted to watch the TV. They often enjoyed winding each other up. They tried to pull angry faces at each other, but keep smirking. They call for their mum, who laughs, knowing what they're up to. Suddenly, their father's bellowing voice chills them to the bone. Boy, get upstairs now. His father is standing at the top of the stairs, hammer in hand, his face red with anger. He screams at him to get here now, boy. Once at the top, his father stands over him, spit flying in Ryan's face. He swings the hammer towards his head, stopping just before it makes contact with his skull. He tells him not to be a sissy, squealing to his mum about his sister. To man up. Ryan cowers with his hands over his head, hoping they'll offer him some protection. Then his father leaves. 
Ryan went away with tears in his eyes. He could see in his father's eyes that he hated him. He knew he would never be what he wanted him to be, nor did he want to be. Also, when you think of like the, this point where he says that he swings the hammer towards his head and he stops it just before it hits him, like even though he doesn't make contact, like that's physical abuse. Like you're physically threatening somebody that all counts as physical abuse and I come across countless times and even in my own story where people sort of discount the fact that these little things like that happen to him and even like the towering over him and all of that like that all comes under the category of physical abuse and that's just really really important to know that the threat is there if the threat is there it means that they're willing to carry it out at some point the boys each sat in a separate police room recounting their childhoods. It began in a farmhouse in rural Cambridgeshire. Luke had a severe allergy to nuts and their father decided it would be safer for them to grow their own food. Their family had always seemed normal from an outside perspective. Most of their early memories at the farmhouse were of them being outside and playing. However, they always knew their father had a short fuse, but they were too young at the time to be too concerned. In 2001, as adolescents, they moved to the village of Moulton. As they had lived a sustainable life at the farmhouse, they hadn't needed much, so both their parents didn't work. Now, however, their mother worked as much as her MS diagnosis would allow, whereas their father worked as little as he could get away with. They earned very little, but always managed to get by. Their father flitted between jobs and started to become more aggressive towards his family. He seemed to lose control of his temper over irrelevant things. He behaved like an impertinent child. They tried to create the calmest and most pleasing environment they could for him, even though it appeared that there was no real reason for his distress. He had always been reactive, but it seemed his anger was becoming more frequent. They simply put it down to the stress of the move. It didn't take long for them to realise that this wasn't the case. This point here is so very important. Um, what I talk about, you'll have heard me talk about this all the time, is escalation. Clearly they're pointing out here that there is a difference in the behaviour even though he's always been like this, it's getting worse, slowly getting worse. And these are the important things to note because these are the things that, you know, if you go to the police, for example, and explain an incident that's just happened, like they're not seeing the escalation behind it, how this has gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse over the months, years, whatever. They're only seeing this one incident. Um, and it's important to understand this as the victim to that if it's already getting the aggression and, and all of that is getting worse then it is is inevitable that the this is going to transition into physical abuse at some point also he seemed uncomfortable with the kids having friends and his wife having a job throughout their childhood he had never been an involved father never going to their parents' evenings or school sports events. He only got involved in their day-to-day -day living to hinder it. He would only get involved when he saw an opportunity to see them fail or suffer or take credit for their achievements and elevate his own perceived reputation among the community and friends. This is a typical, typical, typical trait of abusers, wanting to appear the perfect guy outside of the family home and being something completely different once they're in the home. He wanted them to fail so he could feel better about himself. They became numb to his frequent vitriolic outbursts. 
They were slowly conditioned not to do the things that would attract condemnation. Using fuel to visit friends, playing sports, spending money, having the heating on, making a mess. They were gradually so restricted that they rarely left the house. They had to always be within his sight. He would often threaten their dogs to force them to concede to his behaviour. He would attempt to feed them food poisonous to dogs while protesting his innocence. He would kick them and yell at him. Again, this is another trait. Um, oftentimes, abusers will threaten to hurt or actually hurt um, the person's animals, the family animals. Um, and it's just another way to like gain control over them. It's a threat of like, I'll do anything you want if you just please don't hurt my animals, my pets, whatever. Which is oh, horrendous. Still, the aggression only increased. He would always find something to complain about. And again, I always say, if there's nothing obvious to find wrong, an abuser will no doubt find one somewhere. The kids continued to do great in school, had no behaviour problems, so their situation never appeared to be something anyone could help them with. Besides, they thought, it's not like he was hitting them. Because he wasn't physically violent, they didn't recognise their suffering or that their father was dangerous. In contrast, their father's behaviour seemed to be excessively friendly outside of the house. He would laugh, crack jokes and be full of energy. He had no life outside of the family, so they rarely had people over to their house. He would be exhausted from his performance to other people and end up taking it out on his family later. They believed that all families were like theirs. They thought everyone was on show in public, just like they were. Outsiders would often describe their father as protective. He seemed to be invested in their lives, but really he was monitoring and enforcing boundaries on them. He only let them out of the house when he could drive them. He ran their bank accounts that they always had to ask him for money. The only protection he gave was to help him maintain control. His behaviour became more obvious as they got older and more independent. He prevented their mother's access to her phone and social media. Once they left for university, they would have to call their father and ask to be put through to their mother. Their mother's MS was regularly triggered by his behaviour. She would get severe facial pain for up to an hour. He would relish using this against the kids. It allowed him to have her in excruciating pain and cause the kids emotional distress without physical violence. He would restrict access to her money with claims that he was using it to save for her MS treatment. If she tried to meet work friends, he would accuse her of homosexual activities or of having an affair. He would guilt trip her for weeks if she spent money on things like coffee. She would eventually cancel plans because the misery would far outweigh the joy. She had wanted to travel around Europe with the kids, but he hid her passport. He refused to let her visit Ryan when he competed in a triathlon in Turkey even though the only reason Ryan had even entered was so his mom could have a holiday. Oh, I just think that is so sweet. That is so sweet. Firstly, for a, a son, like, to do that for his mom, like, the only reason he's even competing in this triathlon is because he knows it's in Turkey and he knows, therefore, his mom can have a nice holiday. And the dad just, like, hides her passport, refuses to let her go, like, Oh my god, that just got that just got me, man. That just really got me. Their father would spend his days on his laptop. His only friends were those he had on a chat room. 
His entire world became imaginary. He believed he truly knew these people inside and out. He felt they were his soulmates. He once gave thousands of pounds he had taken from their mother to someone online with whom he had only exchanged a few messages. They had claimed to be a student requesting help to pay their loans. Yet their father was never interested in supporting his own children. This is like crazy to me. This is one of those moments where like I just was like oh my god I just got total chills. Um, because I never even would have thought that this was like a trait but this is something that like my ex used to do not to people online at least not to, to my knowledge he didn't and maybe he did because he was always on his laptop all the time but he firstly with the whole imaginary world thing like I've spoken about this before he would literally like you know so he was like really really into like wwe wrestling whatever which um is fine like i've no issues with people being into that as like a lot of people say oh it's for kids and whatever and it's fake blah 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 like i've no issue with that kind of thing you're into whatever you're into but he would like when he was drunk he would play the theme music over and over and over again of specific wrestlers specifically cm punk if you're a wrestling fan you know who that is um and he would like play his theme music and do like through the living room as if he was doing the walkout as if it was him it was like the most bizarre crazy like the most bizarre thing that like ever and then he would like he would like we would walk into a bar and sit at the bar and he would like buy drinks from random strangers or he would like tip like an insane amount of money and you know buy drinks for random people buy drinks for everyone at the bar but then like I would be completely and utterly berated for days and days and days because I went to the store and bought bread because I didn't have any food in the house and like I thought okay if I buy bread that'll keep me like that'll last me for a few days then I won't have to buy anything else and maybe it'll be fine but then he's like splashing all his money on a complete trainer it's just so it's just the most bizarre behavior but then like reading this I was like oh my god like that's what my abuser used to do and it's like wow like that's another thing that like it's just it's just so many kind of like things that you would never think of like you know people who've never gone through this think of like abuse okay you think like okay this man is like beating up his wife um but it's so much more than that like it's so much more it's all of these crazy bizarre behaviors um so yeah that just that was one particular thing that just really like oh oh my god chills 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 totally remember that um so anyways he became increasingly interested in conspiracy theories and would be frustrated at how little interest his family showed on the topic he didn't believe in anything that was peer-reviewed or scientific he became paranoid and anti-gov if they became aware that he was restricting another element of their lives he would promise that it wouldn't happen again but it always did one example was ryan always kept his bike in the living room for easy access as he cycled daily their father's bike, which he never used, was in the shed. Suddenly, he insisted on having his bike inside and moved Ryan's bike outside. The bike itself was never an issue. He just saw it as Ryan having privileges and spotted a new way to restrict him and remind him of his dominance. His financial control kept their family poor enough that they couldn't survive away from him. This is a really important point here. He gambled and wasted money on investments he didn't understand. He would even go on holidays by himself, such as to Niagara Falls in Spain, but he deemed the £10 a week for Charlotte's dogs, obedience training, her main hobby, too expensive and cancelled it. 
He alone decided how their money was spent and gave their mother the bare minimum for groceries. He would record any extra money spent, such as for hobbies, and would guilt them by saying that money prevented them from being able to feed themselves. He would always complain that their mother's cooking wasn't good enough. He created a system where they were always wrong. This, oh, this is just like reading about my life. It's crazy. I just can't get over it. It's just like, wow, 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 wow. I can't believe it. I can't believe I used to live like this. I can't believe I used to live like this. They would approach him a lot to get help, thinking that he had mental health problems, but he only saw this as threatening, that they were conspiring against him. He was always playing the victim. He always thought the world was out to get him. He was resentful and bitter. He would become hostile and jealous if they demonstrated any gratification to their mother. When others were suffering, he would be jealous. He would think it was an attempt to get attention away from him. Everything had to be about him god once again this is like reading about my own life it's it's so crazy like this is like i know that these things happen and i know these are all traits and i talk about it all the time we talk about it for years now but still when you see it like written from a point of view of a family that's gone through it and it's literally down to details everything that you've gone through as well it's just always so like it's it's like it a good thing in a way because it like clarifies to me even more because sometimes like you still question yourself even years later oh maybe that was like maybe I did this and maybe this and maybe that it's like you almost still kind of excuse things but then when you read that somebody else know like this is something that happens and this is something that they do it's like it's just so clarifying it just gives me a little bit of a boost to be like no like this is he was wrong like this is not your fault um and again and like the boys say and why they wrote this book and why they tell their story and why i did it too is because it's so important for other people to know this and to know that they're not the bad guy this is just abuse and it's common and it happens to so many people his behavior further deteriorated when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer the cancer was removed in a standard procedure, but it never seemed to leave his mind. He blamed the cancer on stress and blamed them for causing the stress. He would insist on drinking green tea every day, and if something interfered with this, he would become enraged with his family. He even had a diary documenting how much stress they put him under daily. He would blame them for the most trivial failures in his day. In their early teens, their mother announced at the table that she had cancer. Their father immediately blamed them for stressing him out with the situation and potentially worsening his prostate cancer, which he didn't even have anymore. He screamed at them because no one understood what it was like for him that his wife had cancer. Oh, it just makes me sick. Whenever they were threatened to leave, he would make threats. <clears throat> he said he would make things up to get them sent to prison. They would burn the house down. As they grew older and formed their own moral... Oh, excuse me. Okay, I'm going to sip some water. <clears throat> Sorry about that, guys. As they grew older and formed their own moral understanding, they challenged him more frequently and powerfully. This only made the situation worse. He was only interested in his own interpretation of life. After a while, his words and actions crept into their minds and disabled their ability to fight back. He would always project his own self-hatred onto others. He accused Ryan of being a sociopath because of his loving and caring behaviour. 
In many ways, they always believed they were part of the problem. They couldn't meet his enforced rules. Whatever they did, they couldn't make their lives pleasant. They were bad kids. Their father would always work himself into a fury. Leaving the house as a family was always an ordeal. He would stand at the door screaming at them to hurry up as they closed windows, locked doors, while he himself did nothing to help. They always hated their birthdays. It would usually mean extra attention and a forced family day out, being forced to look like they were enjoying themselves. They would have to perform exactly as their father expected. The day was to be endured and not enjoyed. As they headed out the door for Ryan's birthday day out, they knew they had their father's threatening and erratic driving to endure as he worked himself into a rage trying to get them out of the house. They drove in absolute silence. Any words out of place and their father would likely begin yelling. They were always in a state of permanent anxiety waiting for his next episode. This is the worst and most exhausting feeling. I've spoken about it before. When you're in a constant state of waiting for what's going to happen next, it's like your whole body is tense all the time. And that causes you to be physically ill and you're just tired all the time and you're just on edge all the time. It's just the worst feeling. Several things happened on the drive. He wasn't sure of the next turn. He didn't know where his sunglasses were. He began driving erratically and dangerously until each issue was resolved by someone else. Everything that happens to him is an urgent frustration that needs to be resolved by his family. He hates them because they've not anticipated his every need before he is forced to articulate it. They arrived at the restaurant. He complained about the seats, the sun in his eyes, it being too hot for him to eat, the waiter not being fast enough. They tried to bring Ryan a birthday cake with 13 candles for him to blow out. Their mother had organised it as a surprise, but their father refuses it, saying they have one at home. You just imagine refusing your own child a birthday cake on their birthday. Like The staff didn't know what to do, so they went back to the kitchen. In a way, Ryan was glad it was over. It's normally worse at home, but at least it's less embarrassing. Their father begins giving cake to the dogs while the kids tell him to stop as they're not allowed to eat chocolate, which is highly toxic to dogs. This causes him to lash out. He is never content on birthdays as it takes the attention away from him. After they moved on to university, their father's behaviour became even more unstable. He terrified Claire and Charlotte. When the boys began earning their own money, he'd become even more jealous and aggressive. He knew his position was fragile. His enforced poverty would soon no longer restrict the lives of his wife and daughter as his sons could provide for them. He began to see them as a source of financial income himself. He would charge them £20 a night to visit home, saying it was their mother demanding the money for food. He continuously tried to waste their money. He once charged Ryan £10,000 to renovate the garage and install an unnecessary electric door for his motorbike. When Ryan refused, he descended into a rage. No amount of money would alleviate the poverty he cultivated at home through his wastefulness. He even prevented their mother from taking on extra work as he didn't want her bringing in more money than him. Despite his behaviour, he would complain that no one understood him. He would continually contradict himself to always appear to be in the right. They learned to live in spite of their father. At times they would simply roll their eyes as he would scream at them for hours, slamming doors and repeating himself until he burned out. Again, very same as my situation. Most people in conflict back down when the other side has yielded, but this would make him gain momentum and he would go at them even harder. 
They learned to separate their internal state from their external appearance. They had a stoic poker face that they wore throughout their lives. Oh my god, again. Chills, chills, chills. Exactly like me. After Ryan had started his job in Holland, the escape plan started to take shape. In June 2016, their mother told their father she was leaving him. She demanded the house be put up for sale. He refused to accept this and attempted a manipulative recovery. He coerced into declaring that they were only downsizing. His behaviour was frightening and so Claire had to pretend to go along with his plans for fear of what he might do. Much to his displeasure, the boys had bought her a smartphone for Christmas so she could now collect evidence of his behaviour which they could show to the outside world if they needed. In addition to this, she had been keeping a diary of everything he had said and done. However, she still didn't think she could take it to the police as there had been no physical harm. This this is why it is so important that laws against coercive control and other types of domestic abuse, not just physical abuse, are coming into effect around the world because people don't realise how harmful this behaviour actually is and it, it makes me so happy. I feel like every day now I'm seeing new laws about coercive control and stalking and all of this stuff coming in and it just makes me so happy because it's so 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 important their father was extremely uncomfortable for obvious reasons with her now having a phone he would steal it and ring numbers in the middle of the night to find out who was on the other end he became increasingly paranoid and would even spy on her at her job in the supermarket to make sure she was really there after the 2008 financial crisis, he had become increasingly paranoid about banks and their £15,000 in life savings was stored in a hidden compartment in the wardrobe. The boys needed half of those savings to add to their own to be able to support Claire and Charlotte. If their father had been able to downsize the house, he would have been able to dispose of the liquidated value, therefore preventing Claire from ever leaving him. So she took half of the savings. He was furious the next day when he noticed, saying that he had been checking the amount every day for nearly a decade. She was coerced into returning the money. He took the day off work, took every last penny left in the online account, all the cash from the house and from Claire's purse and disappeared. He returned a few days later and attempted to make amends by returning the money. And you see here what he does by like leaving for a few days and taking everything ensures that even though he's not in the house, she still won't be able to leave him. He returned a few days later and attempted to make amends by returning the money. He then purchased a safe and insisted their mother place her half into it. At this point, they had signed a rental contract on their new home on Thursday 14th of July. To stall him, Claire had said her half of the money was stored at work and promised it would be back when she came home. However, on the 13th, their father woke in the middle of the night, locked all the doors and locked Claire's passport in the safe. He took all the keys in the house and hid them. When she confronted him the next day, he claimed to have lost them. He insisted on driving her to work so he could collect her and the money that evening. The boys, however, collected her that morning and broke her free from the house that lunchtime. As Ryan and Luke concluded giving their stories to the police, they felt the sickness and anguish return. In the following days, they were in constant contact with the police as they kept them updated on the investigation. The police informed them that their father had been keeping drafts of his murder note for months he had been planning to kill his entire family weeks before they had even planned to move out. So they don't really 
talk about this in the book they don't uh give the full note i don't know if the full note was ever released to the public um certainly ex excerpts of it have been but he left a 12 page they call it a murder note some people say a suicide note um and i did go online and just find whatever excerpts i could from it just because i know the boys don't mention i think that's kind of on purpose in the book but i kind of wanted to just to relay how dangerous this situation is and how planned and controlled this was this wasn't just a moment of madness this was planned so some of the excerpt excerpts from it I've just had my favourite meal, paella, and I'm sitting in the sun with a glass of red wine. I know my mind is screwed. I'm completely screwed. Right or wrong, I had to do it. I love you all. I always have, always will. I had to do this. You completely destroyed my life without giving me a chance, so I will destroy yours. Revenge is a dish served cold. Karma is coming. Karma is a bitch. Now you all lose. They also made discoveries of their own that began to reveal the true cause of their father's actions. As they were collecting belongings from the family home, they found a to-do list that their father had written in the days running up to the event. It included buying a second-hand fridge that he only planned to have for a few days. He had even bargained for an extra £5 off the price. He had clearly been functioning the same as normal. After all, he had managed to write a 12-page murder note explaining his justifications for killing his family. Four days after they had moved out, he had returned a rental car on time to avoid the late fee. He cooked himself a meal he described as his last supper. He'd even purchased a parking ticket on the 19th of July, minutes before murdering his wife and child. This wasn't how they understood murder. There were no examples of a loss of control. In fact, there appeared to be an excess of control. They began to realise their father's anger was contrived. It protected him from ever having to reflect on the consequences of his actions. His entitlement assured him that he was correct. He displayed a total inability to back down when challenged. Their perception of domestic abuse had involved a defunct model of escalating physical attacks, but all the physical violence came at once. They understood that it's the clumsy abusers who get caught and inform the stereotype, not the truly dangerous ones who kill their victims before there is a chance for them to speak. Those who appear in others to others to be ordinary men. It doesn't take a loss of control of emotion or mind to kill. In fact, killing is carried out through a total act of control. It is not to be excused on the grounds of not being oneself. Killing is the final confirmation of who they are. They now began to see their father not as someone who had little control of his emotions, but as someone who had considerable control of them and utilised them to manipulate his family. On the day they had moved their mother out of the house, she had revealed to them that their father had been married before. They were amazed at how determined he had been to silence everyone around him about his life and behaviour. The reason he had left her was that she didn't want kids. When Claire first met him, he had taken her contraceptive pills and insisted she was having his child. Luke's birth forced her to commit to him. He had always intended to have leverage over a woman. They even found out the real reason they had moved to the farmhouse was not because of Luke's nut allergy, but because their father, knowing he had this allergy, fed him nuts on purpose in an act of control over their mother. It was to isolate her from her family who lived by, nearby. They had also learned that their move from there to the village in 2001 was not to be nearer Luke's grammar school, but to move their mother from the friends she had formed there. A lot of people weren't even aware that they had moved. 
At the funeral, several friends even asked them where they had been for the last 15 years. Even their relationships with extended family were severed. Their father had once taken their sister out of school for a month to travel to Australia with him and his mother for a family wedding. Their mother hadn't been permitted to go as she had to take care of the house. For the first few days of the holiday, they stayed in a villa with uncles, aunts and cousins near the venue. One day, he was asked to take a shower before entering the pool. It ended in a confrontation as he was so determined not to do as they asked. He took his mother and Charlotte away from the villa and never went to the wedding and he banned all the children from ever contacting their extended family for over a decade afterwards. Contact only resumed after their grandmother was diagnosed with dementia and moved to a care home. Their father resumed contact with his sister at this time because he wanted power of attorney over his mother's finances and needed her cooperation. He wanted to do everything in his power to maximise his inheritance as he could see her house and money were being used to pay for her care home. After a few months, he realised this was impossible and so he stopped visiting her. In the police station, a few days after the murders, they spotted a poster about coercive control and saw how it articulated their father's behaviour exactly. They also discovered it was a crime. I remember the first time finding out about coercive control and about narcissistic abuse. All I did was I googled all of the characteristics of my abuser, like everything bad that he was doing. I literally just wrote everything into Google in the one search. And I was shocked because so many pictures and articles came up. I literally couldn't believe it. Like I finally had an explanation for it and not just blaming it on alcohol. It was chilling, but it was also kind of weirdly exciting in a way. I felt like a buzz because then I felt like, oh, now I can do something about it. Little did I know, of course. The following characteristics were detailed on the poster and you know I've told these before but it's always important I'm just going to keep going through them because you know you never know if someone's going to just listen to one episode of this and I like to kind of repeat the same information. So the first one was isolation from friends and family and restricting an independent social life. Every time the Ryans had moved to a new house it was to get his mother away from family and friends to isolate her. He forbade her social access and controlled their use of the internet. He would always ensure she had work to do at the house so she never had time for social activities. Two, monitoring activities and movements. He would look over the phone records daily and he would call back numbers he didn't recognise. He would hide behind shelves at the supermarket where Claire worked to monitor her. He would often call their mother's job, ask for Claire and then hang up when she was told when told she was there. These calls were a threat. At any point, he could check where she was and what she was up to. Number three, creating and enforcing arbitrary rules. Their household was dominated by ever-changing, illogical rules and unachievable expectations to which they all would be held accountable except for their father. Number four, threatening reporting to the authorities. He would make threats to report them to authorities for things like tax fraud or other crimes they hadn't committed. Their restricted access to the internet ensured they had no way to check if these threats were credible. Number five, controlling finances. He had sole access to the family accounts. He would scrutinise their spending and ration minimum cash to their mother. He would waste large sums of money without justification and refuse to take accountability. Number six, repeated belittling and criticising. 
They had grown up believing that they were the problem. They were worn down and left feeling powerless. So once the brothers had arrived back in Spalding after the attacks, the police urged them to not read any press coverage of the attack. Luke didn't read it for months, but Ryan only lasted a few days. He was shocked to find reports were sympathetic towards their father. Locals described him as a nice guy who was a DIY nut. Others even said he was always caring. One writer claimed the murder was understandable. There was speculation that the possibility of divorce drove him to it. There was little mention of Claire and Charlotte. The issue of domestic abuse and domestic homicide was overlooked. The dominant belief seemed to be that it was his house and it was his business to dispense whatever punishment he saw fit. When someone chooses to kill, they should no longer be the person who loves DIY. Favourable moments of a person shouldn't be what defines their life after they've committed such a horrendous act of violence. These narratives are dangerous and I could not agree more. There were recurring arguments in defence of domestic abuse. It seemed that victims were not allowed to leave or stay without their actions being disapproved of. These arguments leave victims with nowhere to go and it became clear that this was exactly what they were intending to achieve, to smother victims into silent submission. There also seemed to be a fascination with the sawn-off shotgun their father had used. There had been a large media focus on how the gun had been obtained. They wondered how there could be such fierce condemnation of the gun, but not the man who pulled the trigger. Even close female friends of their mother tried to find excuses for his actions, like had his wife been having an affair? Others described how difficult divorce can be and how deeply he must have been suffering. There were questions about whether it was because of money troubles, because he resented his children, and about why Claire had stayed with him for so long. Society frequently and preferentially blames weapons for murders, short skirts for rapes, or alcohol for assaults. There are many who can hold a shotgun but not pose a threat to anyone. Many men, on encountering an inebriated woman alone in the early hours, would offer guidance to ensure her safe return home. It is possible to consume alcohol and maintain control and act respectively towards others. These are merely excuses. Throughout the coverage, there was no mention of the true threat to society. The fact an ordinary man could hold such broken beliefs that he feels justified in killing his family after inflicting years of abuse on them. These points that they make are so important. There remained a persistent belief that a man is entitled to kill his family when they do not obey his rules. The words domestic abuse were rarely mentioned in the reporting. So again, like I urge you to read this book. It contains so much more explanation and details about the topic. I just didn't have time to go through everything. It was just a truly fascinating and frustrating read, um, particularly this particular chapter in the book um and it's something i see all the time i'm constantly getting frustrated online every day when i see comments and not even the comments on the articles but the articles themselves about like um victims of like horrendous crimes and abuse domestic abuse in particular um it's just disgusting but i please if you don't if you don't read the whole book read this chapter in the book towards the end because honestly i was literally sitting there and just it, it it's just so there's so many like facts and really great information in there and um they give great information too on like why people react like this um so please read it and again there's a link 
for the book in the bio as always. One evening, Claire had had a friend over for coffee and the friend was lamenting the fact that they couldn't go out for coffee together anymore and she missed that. Claire explained that her husband wouldn't let her have money to go out. Her friend then insisted on buying the coffee the next time. She said he wouldn't let her do that either because of the fuel that he records the odometer. Her friend couldn't believe it. She said, he won't let you work more hours and told you not to go for that promotion and then he says you don't have enough money for fuel. I'll pick you up and we'll go for coffee, Claire. She said she would love to, but he wouldn't allow that either. She said he had kept her up all night, accusing her of having an affair with her. Her friend was outraged. They were both straight married women. Her husband then entered the kitchen, didn't acknowledge either of them and pulled a chair to the corner of the room where he sat looking out of the window. After attempting to sustain the conversation for a few minutes, Claire suggests they go and sit with Charlotte in the sitting room. As they sit and begin chatting with Charlotte, her husband once again enters the room and sits in the corner. Everyone is tense, knowing their conversation is being monitored. After a while, Charlotte goes outside to play with the dogs and Claire suggests they join them. After a minute, her husband follows. Charlotte whispers to her mum, this is scary. She attempts to calm her down, but is angry and embarrassed. Then her friend says she better go home and get the dinner on and leaves. Claire says it'll be the last time she has anyone over as she feels physically sick. In the press coverage, there was never a suggestion that the family had a backstory, yet there were plenty of fabricated backstories for why their father was justified in what he did, such as suggesting he may have had a difficult childhood. Yes, Luke and Ryan's childhoods had been more than difficult, but neither of them had ever had the urge to kill. Talk of trauma causing abuse is a, sub a diversion. On the morning of the killings, their father had carefully prepared a note for the police on the driver's seat, providing the house keys and politely requesting they didn't break the door down. He also excused himself with the marijuana traces that the police would inevitably find in the house in the car, lying and claiming it was for pain relief. He excused the murder of his wife and daughter by claiming that he had always been non-violent. He had learned to create a moral crown for himself. We cannot allow abusers to speak on behalf of victims or let their identities be subsumed into that of the abuser. The commonality among those who inflict evil is resentfulness and bitterness at the world for their own suffering. This is something obviously in a, in a completely different, um, in a completely different way. Um, like my ex and I've only heard a very, very small portion of things that he said, but like he really tried to blacken my name. Um, and I heard things like, you know, he was telling people that I, uh, was severely depressed that I was out partying all the time and um, that I had gotten into drugs and like just lots of stuff that you know claiming that I used him um, to get a working visa for this country um, meantime like I literally had never had any intention of moving here and he basically kind of coerced me into coming here um, but yeah, just things like that, like, and, and like the boys say here, um, you know, we can't let abusers speak on behalf of the victims. We can't let them speak on their victims' characters because they're not going to speak on the real person and they're not going to speak fairly. They want to make themselves look like the victims when they most definitely are not.
One evening, a friend knocked on their door to ask the boys out to play. Ryan said they couldn't as they had homework. He closed the door quickly. He knew he must have appeared rude to his friend, but if he left the door open for too long, heat would escape the house. Their father would have been counting every second the door was open. The living room was the only room in the house with the heating on. Their father shouted that he had had the door open for way too long. The rest of the house is icy cold. Ryan asks if he can let the dogs in from the kitchen as it is freezing. His father says if it's such a problem, they'll just get rid of the dogs. He knew to keep quiet then. Their father blasts the football game on the TV. Their mother pleads with him to turn it down as Charlotte can't concentrate on her homework. Charlotte says she can't do it anywhere else in the house as it's so cold. He yells at her to put her headphones on then, that it's his house and he works to pay the bills. Now that he has won, his interest in the match wanes, yet he keeps it on with the volume up high. His attention returns to his laptop and he begins laughing loudly. They will literally do anything to make your life harder. Ryan came out of the exam hall after completing one of his GCSEs. He avoids his fellow students discussing the exam as he knows his father is waiting for him and every minute counts. He grumbles at him that he is late even though he is exactly on time. To his father, all that matters is that they get back to the house as soon as possible. As they drive, someone wants to overtake them. Despite his rush, he is driving way slower than the speed limit allows. The polite request by the van driver behind them infuriates him. He slows down further and moves toward the middle of the road on the narrow country lane. When they get to a wider road and the van goes to overtake, he suddenly slams his foot on the accelerator. They are approaching a primary school and are now driving double the speed limit, but he rolls down his window and says to the driver, there's a primary school here you shit, while their car swerves and speeds directly in front of the school gates with parents and children walking on the adjacent paths. His eyes are wild and his mouth is spitting. Everyone looks at him incredulously. And that's another thing that like, they can't bear somebody like, telling them they're wrong or like even something as as little as like oh you're driving too slow for me I want to overtake you can you please let me pass you like like it's like they don't want to be oh I don't want to be the driver that's driving so slow that you can't overtake me it's like how dare you ask me like stupid little things like that that seem so childish um just like will cause them to just behave completely erratically and like I think I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before that uh, the apartment that I lived in with my uh, abuser here there was this um, I say a kid he was probably like you know I would say late teens early 20s at the time um, and he he was one of our neighbours and um, our landlord uh, knew who he was knew the family and he said you know he's um, he's a very like routine guy and he's like he's he's on the spectrum um, I'm not 100% sure, I know the terminology has changed recently, so I don't want to use the term that was used previously, um, but he was, he was very much someone that, like, liked routine, and he always just, he always went for, like, this, like, really long walk, like, every single day, at the same time, he would always go for this, like, crazy long walk, you would see him anywhere in the whole neighbourhood, you would see him, and he would always, like, walk really fast, like, with a purpose, he was always really fast walking, just, like, not bothering anyone just out walking just doing his thing it's his routine whatever and he would always like walk past our house at the same time every day and then you know various places throughout the neighborhood you would see him too um and he this guy used to bother him 
so much like and again he never interfered with us never spoke to us was just walking on the street which he's perfectly allowed to do whenever he wants to and he would get completely infuriated and i mean infuriated every time he saw this guy walking he was like he just annoys me so much like he just annoys me he irritates me why is he walking like that why is he walking at the same time every day like he used to get red in the face and just like walk around the living room he'd have to go outside for a cigarette because he would get so worked up about it like something so stupid it's like why are you letting something like that bother you like it doesn't make any sense um and i still see this this kid like all the time i say kid again like he's probably well into his 20s now but <laughs> still that's just how i feel now i'm bending towards my 40s i feel like everyone younger than me is a kid um and i still see him i see him every day almost every day walking like he still has his routine going and i always get a little kick out of it when i see him and it always just reminds me of how frustrated uh my abuser used to get um and i don't know why but it always puts a little smile on my face when i see him um but yeah it's just crazy things like that that just like bother them more than they should bother any normal human being uh so getting back to the story uh months before the murders their father would march around the house for hours in the middle of the night the same pacing that was seen before he committed suicide after killing their mother and sister it was clear to them that he had been mentally preparing to kill them for several months maybe even years a police report on his internet searches reveals that he had been investigating murder for months one search among many read how many men kill their wives. Divorce had nothing to do with his actions. It was entirely to do with their continued subordination. He felt he was losing his firm grip on their lives and was determined to kill them all for it. Luke and Ryan idolised their mother and sister. Their perseverance is what always inspired them to keep going. It was their spirits that gave them hope. Their strength demonstrated to them that cruelty is derived from weakness. They always knew they were surrounded by two angels. They taught them to appreciate the simple things in life. They were selfless, caring people. They both loved animals and spoiled their dogs. Charlotte loved horse riding and volunteering with the elderly and disabled. She was sporty and adventurous. They were almost like sisters instead of mother and daughter. They would watch movies together in Charlotte's room and do each other's makeup. Charlotte had a love for food, especially chocolate. She was never afraid to make a fool of herself in order to make her friends laugh. Ooh. Their mother was their foundation. She was their cheerleader. She gave them everything she could. She was the antidote to their father. She showed them they were valuable, capable and good. They encouraged her to take up swimming for the, her MS. It became a source of her freedom and where she enjoyed peace. She made many friends there as she was always so approachable and chatty. With every breath, Charlotte and Claire immerse themselves in life. Oh God, that is, that's so heartbreaking to me. These are just two ladies just trying to live their lives in the best way possible. They're trying to make the best of this awful situation that we're in. They were in. They finally found a, what, a few days, a week or so of freedom and only for it to end like this, but you know, I'm happy that they even got to have those few days that they did have. Um, and they lived their last days feeling so free like that. But yeah, that is tough to read. 
Nine months after the tragedy, Ryan had left the country for a month to work. They were both functioning in the most basic of ways, but were mostly still in a daze. Luke wrote a letter to him to talk honestly about what had happened. It was time to engage with the past and unravel it together. They needed to tear out everything that no longer served them. It was also time they told their side of the story. After endless media commentary, Luke chose to post the letter to Facebook publicly, hoping it would empower Ryan to talk if he ever needed to. The following is the letter. What I've written below is something that I've never been able to say and probably never will be able to say in person to my little brother Ryan. On the 19th of July 2016, our father shot and killed our mum Claire and our 19-year-old sister Charlotte. It was the result of decades of abuse and controlling and intimidating behaviour. He was a tyrant who wouldn't let his family live outside of his domination. Our father was a terrorist living within our own home. He had no cause but to frighten his family and to generate his own esteem from trampling and bullying us. For over a decade we had tried to live on numerous occasions but he manipulated and threatened on every occasion. Ever since we were young boys, Ryan and I aspired for a better life for Mum and Charlotte and to finally give our family the life our father had deprived us of. Ryan and I had been working abroad since leaving university and had raised enough money to rent a small place for Charlotte and Mum while we saved to find a place elsewhere for them. We moved Mum out of our house whilst our father was out, only a few days before the event on 19th of July. Killing our mother and sister was our father's final denial of the future we spent our lives trying to create for them, the life they deserved. He killed himself in an act of cowardice, finally showing how little he had to live for outside of punishing his family for his own distorted sense of power. Leading up to the event on the 19th of July, I had always believed I was a strong older brother. I had always tried to put on a brave face and attempted to defuse the tensions of our father, doing my best to calm the environment. However, after university, Ryan and I moved away from home for work and our father's behaviour deteriorated further. The effects were becoming unmanageable for me. Charlotte was suffering from severe depression and suicidal thoughts and had dropped out of university. Mum's multiple sclerosis was deteriorating rapidly from the stress our father was causing her and she was taking prescribed morphine every day in an attempt to dampen the pain that her disease inflicted. I could no longer face going home because I didn't know what I could do anymore. I didn't feel I could manage. I felt entirely helpless. I was overwhelmed. Ryan had always come home every weekend that he could. At the time he was working in Holland and made the journey home every weekend to check that mum and Charlotte were okay and to resist our father's behaviour. He would always look after mum and Charlotte and spend his money on them rather than himself. Whether it was for Charlotte to come on holiday to visit him when he was working in Australia or for swimming lessons for mum, he always gave them a powerful optimism in what was a despairing situation for us all. Since the 19th of July last year, it's become clear to me that I wouldn't be here without my little brother. I act strong, but he is stronger. Even when we struggled through our darkest moments against our father, Ryan dared to remain resistant which I had, when I had broken down and couldn't face anymore. He was still able to love and believe in a world that our father had filled with hate. Ryan's resilience and hope was perceived by our father as a rebuttal to his dominance. For that, Ryan suffered the strongest wrath from our father. Throughout it all, I had shut my emotions down because I simply didn't have the courage to confront the reality of our situation. I became more detached and hidden within myself in an attempt to diminish the trauma. Ryan protected us. He never hid, but always threw himself in the firing line to protect us. Nothing can ever replace what we lost on the 19th of July and no words can describe what we have endured. 
Each and every day, I still feel the panic and scramble for the reset button, struggling with the feeling that somehow we live in a wrong world. For the rest of our lives, we must learn to deal with what happened on that day. The last year has drawn into focus how lucky we all were to have Ryan. I remember when I was with Charlotte and she would only talk of how proud she was to have a brother like Ryan. No mother could hope for a better son, so determined to love his mother no matter what storm it brought him. I often think that Ryan is exactly the kind of man that the world needs more of. We now live together with our dogs, Indy and Bella, which mum and Charlotte gave so much love and attention to. Ryan currently works abroad and I know that in the future he would love to be able to spend more time with the dogs. If the dogs are happy, then Ryan is happy, and if Ryan is happy, then I'm happy. For all that we've been through, there isn't much I can give Ryan to show my appreciation. It's his determination that has kept me going, minute by minute, hour by hour, and day by day, for 26 years, and for that I honestly owe him my life. I couldn't have fought the battles by myself, and towards the end the battles have beaten me, but not him. He is indestructible, a force for good that cannot be stopped. He is the person I've needed to stand up for me when I am too weak. For everything our father has done to attempt to destroy Ryan, he has failed. Ryan is the strongest, most kind-hearted person and refuses to let the hate triumph over the love he'll fought for. I've piggybacked on his strength for all these years. Ryan refuses to give up fighting for something better. He stares hard-nosed into the face of cruelty and he always finds hope when everything seems futile. I've started a fundraising page because I want Ryan to know that I care and I want him to know that other people care too. I could never say what I've said above to his face. In fact, even if I tried, I'm sure he'd punch me. I want Ryan to be able to follow his dreams in life. He doesn't deserve the struggles he's faced. I want him to believe that good things can happen and to believe in the future that lies ahead of him. As we spend the rest of our lives rebuilding, as we look to find new things to believe in, new hope and new meaning, I want him to be free to be whoever he wants to be, the person he deserves to be. I don't think Mum and Charlotte could be prouder of him now. If they were looking down, I'm sure they'd have tears in their eyes if they wonder what on earth he's made of. I'm certain that evil is haunted by nightmares of my little brother. It's Ryan's 26th birthday on the 22nd of April and I want to wish him the best future that he could ever hope for. I hope you can join me. My little brother is my hero and I love him. I hope that our story can encourage others to stand up to and speak out about the many forms of domestic abuse. I hope it empowers those who are suffering its consequences to take action. As time went on, the boys' memories of their mum and sister were what kept them going. Their father tried to take everything from them, but he could never take those treasured memories. Luke and Ryan Hart are now award-winning domestic abuse advocates, authors and international keynote speakers. Through their inspiring and educational keynote speeches, they have directly presented to over 15,000 people in more than 200 speaking engagements across 12 countries. They share their story as white ribbon ambassadors and refuge champions. They've worked extensively in the UK and delivered sessions with the NHS, police forces, probation, social services, teachers, and sessions aimed at the general public. So that is the story of Claire and Charlotte, Luke and Ryan. Um, that was, oh, that was a particularly hard one for me. As I said, um, you know, I've been through it and you know, I'm always so grateful that my story ended peacefully, eventually. Um, it doesn't work out that way for everyone. There's so many people with stories just like Luke and Ryan. They lost their beautiful mom and sister. It's 
devastating and you know if you're a victim and people are telling you that oh you've left now everything is fine or just get up and leave why are you still staying there they just don't understand they just don't understand like we do and that's exactly why I do this podcast why I do the work that I do um because I want people to know this I want them to know these stories I want them to know, to, to know my stories I want them to understand that the victim in their lives is doing the best that they can in a really horrendous dangerous situation and just just support them just be there for him for them just listen to them um and don't judge them more importantly please don't judge them so that wraps up this month's episode um i'm so sorry that it took so long um i'm trying my best i'm trying my best i promise um i'm gonna be better always want to be better i'm gonna be better always say i'm gonna be better and i do try so let's see we got this recorded anyway the only reason why i got this recorded is because i couldn't go to work today because of a, a recurring knee injury so i can't walk so i'm just sitting here anyway so i i did it did the episode and here we are once again reach out to me all my social media is linked in the bio please rate the podcast if you can leave a review share it with your friends it's all appreciated i have so much fun stuff coming up um i just told you about my youtube videos i'm gonna try and do much more stuff when i can um, i'm still working on merch if you uh sign off for my patreon you can get a free sticker of my logo and yeah that's um that's all i got for you right now and hopefully i'll be back soon i'm hoping i'm hoping i'm hoping but until then i'm constantly posting on my social media um so check me out there and again the hotline.org if you need any help please contact them they're amazing 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 and thank you so much for listening i appreciate every single one of you now go and have yourselves a great week